This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, a podcast series brought to you by the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. This podcast is about all those little things we do in our classroom, the little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb, and I'm here joined by my friend and colleague, Al. Hi, everyone. The series is really motivated by our belief that what ultimately matters to students and their experience is what we do in the classrooms. In our universities, we talk a lot about course design, teaching policy, teaching budgets, but what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about the many small examples of good practice that can have a big impact in our classrooms. And so in Higher Ed Heroes, what we want to do is to share these particular examples by having conversations with great teachers, conversations about the types of practices that they use to bring their classroom alive and that they believe can be used by others to good effect. In these conversations, we are trying to avoid using the kind of jargon that we often hear in our teaching committees in higher education. So we're aiming for a buzzword-free zone. So we're trying to avoid phrases like flipped classroom, blended learning, work-integrated learning, even research-led teaching. And when we do hear those buzzwords, which we think are better suited to teaching committees, we are going to hit this guy. For the last time, no. We hope the buzzer is going to encourage all three of us to talk in everyday terms about teaching practices, but we shall see. And we should emphasize, it's a democratic buzzer, so it's not just the conveners who can use it on our wonderful guests who are introduced in a second, but we can use it on ourselves as well. In today's episode, we're talking about student led course redesign and we are being joined here oh, I almost it's a buzzer. To, I almost no, okay <laughs> and we're and uh, we're joined here by uh, Nick Cara senior lecturer at the School of Communications and Arts here at the University of Queensland Nick welcome thanks for having me we know that you involve your students quite heavily in the actual design and redesign of your courses and before we go into like how you put students into that driving seat in many ways. Maybe you could start off by saying like, what triggered your idea to involve students in the design and redesign of your courses? I guess students wanting to know how other students were doing the course. So you know like when you're, when you're a lecturer in a course, you're like the, the figure in the tower in the middle of the panopticon, you know, <laughs> like looking out at every single student and you know what they're up to. But the students sometimes I feel think feel like particularly big undergraduate classes like they're a bit invisible from each other like they hear each other talking tutorial or whatever but they don't see each other's work very much and I think one of the ways we've like students I, I noticed you know not uh, this seems relatively recent to me where students are asking for exemplars like can you show me examples of previous student work and I was like always reluctant to do that like I mean I'd had I had one semester where I put up a bunch of examples and it prompted this amazing set of arguments from students in the course, that they didn't think the examples were very good and didn't think that the examples were nearly as good as their own work. And I was like, oh, man, I've caused myself major grief. I'm never giving them examples ever again. It seemed to me a fair enough kind of demand to, to hear the voices of other students in the course and in more than just the way you would hear it in tutorial. So, yeah, it kicked off by me bringing students into uh, an audio studio, into a radio studio, and recording audio examples of written work 
um, some of it scripted and some of it unscripted, sharing those recordings with the class as a way to say, okay, here's not a written example of the essay, but here are the ideas and arguments I want you to make in a different sort of medium. And that sort of difference between like making the medium different opened up enough of a gap, I think. So that's how it began. Uh, it's just a series of kind of, that just became part of my teaching practice. And then it kind of, yeah, developed in all sorts of ways from there because I learned things about, yeah, how this might be productive along the way. That was the beginning, you said, and then you started right. taking this further in other directions. Right. Maybe talk us through that a bit. What I discovered was t two things. One is that, um, like, you know, in, in my teaching, we kind of had... I was teaching what students perceived as a theory course, <laughs> you know, like, this is the boring theory course <laughs> and that's that I have to do. So I'd be like, why are you doing this course? Well, we have to do it, yeah. you know, like... And particularly that my cohort is mixed. It's got journalism students and PR students who are typically, like, really vocationally minded. They want practical stuff in their degree. And then I had, like, lots of BA students who... I mean, they just weren't looking for that as much. So I had that kind of tension in the course. And so in a sense, they had an appetite to just get in and make stuff that wasn't written. Like as soon as you were saying, oh, we're going to work in an audio audio, or audiovisual medium, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. So that, that kind of, I learned that that um, just changed, in a sense, for some students, their kind of enthusiasm and motivation for the ideas. And it got them to use theory. So it was like um, the theory all of a sudden became this thing that I always wanted it to be, which was this kind of lively conversational kind of set of ideas and devices and whatever. So it fostered that, and I learned that, that it was a way of getting students to use theory. And then secondly, every time we did this, I would learn amazing things about... This course in particular I'm thinking of now is called Media and Society, and I would just learn amazing things about their experience with media and the kinds of uh, texts that they are interested in and media practices they are interested in and immersed in That was just amazing. They could like take the ideas in the course and just put them to work within their lived experience, which is just different to me, given um, sometimes just about age, yeah. <laughs> but other times it's about you know in a, in a diverse cohort, like which country you've come from, and um, I think um, often gender and class are at play as well here in all sorts of ways. So that was all of a sudden I'm like my course was filling up with examples that were way broader than my experience with media. I should declare an interest. Nick spoke at our teaching retreat in our school a year oh, ago, yeah. two I years ago. That. Do yeah, you remember? Yeah, yeah. And I listened to what you said about um, getting your students just to talk about assessments. Right. And I did it this year in one of my courses. Just had them do some recordings that they shared with each other. Right. Where they just spoke to each other about how they were thinking about a reflective essay, and just exchanged ideas, and it was wonderful. Right. It really helped them if you like, defuse the tension around an unknown assessment and demystify some of the more abstract elements. And just sitting listening yeah. to them really teaches you yeah, it does. what they're yeah. thinking. Yeah, And you learn, because you have a sense of how you should teach the doing of an assessment, but then when you listen to your particularly really good students talk about how they do it, you're like, oh, that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> like, And you can use those recordings in different ways. I used basically stole your idea for assessment, but there was, there's lots of other ways you can use it, isn't there? Yeah, and you're kind of inviting them into modes of expression and conversation that, uh, like, sometimes I feel like the tension at play here is like, oh, are we kind of, you know, it's like we're chasing something, chasing the mythical small group tutorial that we all kind of pine for, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and we're kind of creating all of these new sorts of tactics and architecture and whatever to try to reinvent that. Uh, and it's like, wouldn't it just be better if we could meet in groups of six? <laughs> um, so, like, that's the tension in it for me sometimes. 
but I'm kind of also a bit of a I shouldn't say this to people from a politics school, but a realist. <laughs> I don't know if that carries weight or baggage for you that um, it maybe doesn't for me. But it's like, you know, here's the context I'm teaching in. And I don't know to what extent, I don't know why I think of this, but you guys might not be Australian enough to know about recovery, the 90s morning TV show nope. on the ABC. No, 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 no. Right. No, no, no. We get to learn. Excellent. Recovery was this TV show that ran from like, I don't know, 7 till 9am on ABC TV through the 90s, hosted by Dylan Lewis. And it was like um, it was like Triple J on TV. So it was like all the bands that would come through Australia would show up and play on Recovery, which is very funny because they'd be rocking up to play on TV at 7 in the morning. <laughs> and then they would hang out on the couch with Dylan. It'd be just complete you know, madness. But every kid who grew up in Australia in that period watched recovery there's this interview that they did with his band Spiderbait also maybe a cultural reference that <laughs> might <laughs> pass you by so Spiderbait were like one of the alternative bands of the 90s in Australia they came from a little country town called Finley very hard fast kind of music very but very groovy kind of music too they Dylan asked them why why all of their albums were like under half an hour long, <laughs> and they were like, "Man, we're the MTV generation. Like, we can't concentrate for longer than that. Like, we couldn't play a song longer than three minutes." And I don't know whether, do you know, like, just just in se- in a sense, the um, the experiments with media in a in in my course sometimes I think are driven by rather than trying to resist, but somehow find ways to roll with the multimedia forms of kind of conversation and idea sharing that I think our students are immersed in. And it's like, I think that's, I don't know that I've got the answer to that, but it's like part of the pining for the small group tutorial is kind of ignoring the multimedia subjectivity that our students kind of experience, right? Yeah. We should dive into that a bit more. I feel as though colleagues, certainly around universities I've worked in, are still trying to resist that. Right. Somehow right. they can hold back right. changes that are way <laughs> right. beyond our institution <laughs> right. which are way bigger than us and they want to really kind of resist that in yeah. ways which are just impossible right mm. right and and aren't all that new like oh, the reason I'm telling the Spider-Man story is it's like 1998 that's like 20 <laughs> years ago you know what is interesting Al here is that you know one way to get into this is to just let the students do that stuff. Exactly. Right? They are immersed yeah. and they yeah. can do it and as long as you generate that kind of freedom that they can use this and and thrive through it you don't need to be able to master that Mm. you need to be able to enable that i think that's the kind of key message for me here i I love the way in which it was a little bit like independent learning it was a little bit like those principles that you try and do in seminars where you put the obligation on students Mm. and say okay other students are going to be listening so now talk about your assessment in a way that you think would help someone who's not in the room and they really took to that and started seeing themselves as teachers. I thought it was excellent in that regard. Like the students who you're inviting to talk about how they do assessment were kind of giving expression to things that they, like quite implicit practices they had um, by sketching it out, you know, like all of a sudden like, oh, there's a you know, they were like, oh, look at the way I do this thing and then comparing their practices to each other was like really productive and kind of productive for me, actually, as a, you know, as someone who has to write a lot as well. It's like, oh, these students can teach me. Some of these students can at least teach me a thing or two about this. You said to me when you were describing what you were doing and involving students in the design and redesign of your courses that this was one of the most challenging but also one of the most rewarding things that you have done for your own teaching. And, yeah. and in what ways challenging and in what ways in particular rewarding? Challenging in the uh, every time I did this, <laughs> you'd sit down at that first meeting, even like sometimes several meetings, and you'd kind of be saying to students like, okay, I'm redesigning a course and you're kind of working with me on 
this kind of, you know, four weeks of it. This this is the part that we're working on. And let me tell you, like, what I think student partnership is. It means that I'm not, you're, like, not working for me. You're not, like, an employee. Um, this is, like, a partnership. So you're going to be doing things that I can't do. You're going to be coming up with ideas I couldn't come up with. And you're going to be expressing your view about whether or not what we're doing is any good. Like, And they'd, like understand at a certain level like you know intellectual sense what I was saying and then it'd be like okay so what are we going to do it'd be like silence like do you know challenging in that respect they were like no 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 like I'm at university you don't I'm here to learn from you like do you know and sometimes it uh, also that the kind of students who self-select into these sorts of things are just are just super deferential to their, to their academics right mm. there and so they're just waiting to they just couldn't there was always this not not like resistance in the sense like they they were opposed to it but they just didn't it just opened up this gap all of a sudden like what i meant to you you're telling me that i should be telling you what should be in that four weeks of the course i'm like well sort of i mean i'm going to tell you if i don't think your ideas are good but you're going to do the same to me and they'll be like oh, i don't know like that was really challenging and also challenging for me in the sense that i kind of you know there's a part of me that thinks this that's like so skeptical of this populist idea that you should let students write the curriculum. Like, there's, do you know, like if someone who wasn't doing this said this to me, I'd be like, that is such garbage. Like, what a load of garbage. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not an abdication of academic expertise, but it's like an invitation that if these are the ideas that we're trying to understand, how are we going to do that? And so that just took, and some groups, every group has a certain dynamic, and some groups would have a, have a kind of, um, you know, someone who would kind of, unlock the door and then things would start to happen but other groups this was this was a challenge for for a long time into the project about how to get them to really to how to move us from a point where I'm just sort of saying okay make this make that to them kind of taking stuff on and then the other challenge that tended to come up is they pitch an idea we make it and then sometimes those ideas don't work and I have to say it doesn't work it's not good. We're going to have to make it again or actually it's not going to make the cut for these reasons. And that's always a challenge too, right? Because mm-hmm. students are so... It, it alerted me to the fact that students, the feedback they get on their work, it's a very private moment, do you know what I mean? They log on, they check their grade, and they don't have to tell anyone about it. But here's a moment where, do you know what I mean, the quality of their work, we have to have a discussion about it. And if it's not what we need, then we have to do it again. And that mm-hmm. never... Ha- like, but that happens... That's, that's what working is, like, mm. you know? We don't really do that at uni, but that's what life's all about. Resilience so that, yeah, building. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so that's the challenging stuff. But I think the rewarding stuff is that once they got into it, and often, like, super rewarding when a student would... You'd send people away. Like, you know, we'd meet, we'd workshop stuff. They'd go away, come back with ideas. We'd meet again, you know? And students would, at a certain point, bring stuff in that's just so good. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you're just like, this... And they could sense your excitement, I think, for um, for what they were doing. And this, and then you just get this really rewarding vibe. And I just felt, in the end, um, rewarding because my course was filling up, in a sense, with more diverse voices and more diverse perspectives and experiences around media. Rewarding in the sense that it felt like there were there were sort of two voices in the course. One that's tended to be academics like me, narrating in a sense the intellectual kind of arguments of the course, and then this kind of kind of companion voice of students playing with the ideas, talking them through, navigating how you would do the course, you know. And there's and there's just something about that kind of mixture of voices in the course that's really rewarding as a, a to kind of as to sit back and look at. If, if someone was um, opting to 
be brave and do what you've done and let student voices into the design, what would be the number one tip for them? Obviously, it takes time. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah, yeah, because students are socialised into that mindset that you were just speaking of. Right. Be deferential, but you want to empower them. Yeah, and Mm. so I think you need to you need to be committed to it as a like the groups that it worked really well with were groups where I worked with them for for several months. Like when I tried to do it in a more compressed time, it wouldn't. It just never quite worked. Mm. So you kind of needed that. You just needed to put the energy and time, in a sense, into building rapport and trust and conversation and um, and all of that. But I think also that the groups where it really worked well, the partly because of what the task was or the topic was and partly because of who the students were, they had a really intrinsic motivation to do it because the ideas they were talking about or the examples they were working with were stuff that really mattered to them. Like it was about the way their lives were represented or political issues they cared about or, you know, and they just, this was stuff they wanted to, to talk about and understand and say something about. I think often a kind of, they wanted to learn how to, how to produce their ideas as animations or as video or as audio or whatever we were trying to do. So that kind of intrinsic kind of motivation, I think I've seen these projects not work when you're asking students to do something, but they don't really have an intrinsic reason why they'd want to do it, do you know? Yeah, and that's, yeah. It strikes me as, you know, you as a course convener or a lecturer, you need to also have the confidence in you throwing yourself into an environment where it can go in either direction, right? You like right. you need to let go of the desire that probably a lot of us have to to stay in command and in control, right? To let let it be run and driven a lot by the students in your course, which, if you can allow this to happen, can be very liberating, I guess. It's so easy just to be at the top of the apex in your own classroom. It is, but it's like mm. it's like rejecting hierarchy without rejecting the idea that you're at a university and you're the <laughs> yeah. you're the kind of privileged expert in the course and it matters that there's a privileged expert in the course you know like there's a difference between so i kind of still have this big tension in how in like you know like i'm not like a lunatic revolutionary participatory education kind of person you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i mean i really it's like how to maintain control over the intellectual substance of the cause while opening up everything else you know what I mean as yeah that's the that's the tension I think in a lot of what I was trying mm. to do because if you go too far students feel shortchanged they think no no I'm being taught by people that haven't got yeah and, and to be honest I've had that happen like that's been one of the responses where some students kind of viewing this content like overwhelmingly students really like this content but there is that kind of cynical student that's like well, why am I why am I listening to other students I don't pay for that <laughs> like do you know what I mean and and in a sense I'm like totally alert to that because like fair enough if you know like I have my response to that but I think that there's you know and I, I feel that vibe from colleagues sometimes too about like you get to students <laughs> you know like what are they you know that's like abdicating your role is that and I'm you know I, I kind of I'm hugely sympathetic to that to that position in, in a way. And what's interesting, I mean, I've known you for a number of years now, and I think it's not that you have studied pedagogy, and right. and then decided, okay, I'm coming, I've finished my PhD, I'm I'm getting my first job at university, and I'm gonna implement a set of kind of pedagogical principles that are underpinned by this kind of participatory education. Right. No, <laughs> <laughs> there we go, self buzzed here. In case you didn't see that, it was something that developed over time and I think where you probably must have had a moment where you said okay I'm just going to try that out and so I was wondering as a kind of um, maybe final reflections to those who are listening in here like what's the kind of 
big advice you would give people who might feel that this is something they would want to try out or feel that maybe there's something in them for them and their classroom? I felt like I could only do this with my course at the point where I felt really kind of confident and familiar with its kind of narrative, its intellectual narrative. And so I feel like a lot of work had to go into that before as a kind of foundation upon which you can then start to experiment. So like the, the narrative stays, you know, main, is, maintains the kind of intellectual backbone of the course. And then it's like start small, you know, like don't, you know, don't renovate from the ground up straight away. But think about, and, and for me also, it's like start small, but thinking about particular problems here, like what is it that I think students might be able to help me with? What is it that I can't do that students would probably be expert at? And the first opening of that for me was they know things about contemporary media that I don't know just because of how fragmented and customised our media environment is. And they might be able to just speak to it. And in doing that, I think it's living out a certain kind of politics. Like, I'm not an expert on pedagogy, but my discipline is full of a kind of account of the power and participation, right? So, you know, in, in media and communication, we're kind of thinking about what are the ways in which digital media might afford new forms of expression and participation. And I think that's partly technical and partly cultural, but it's like we live in a moment where students, you know, being invited to record yourself, to make video, expressing your thoughts and whatever isn't a completely foreign idea to them. So it's kind of like you're working within and with their media cultures. And maybe as a final reflection, I think sometimes that showed up in the form, like the kind of video they wanted to make was really different to the kind of educational video that universities are used to making. <laughs> and it's like, no, we should go with their impulses here about what kind of video looks good, do you know? Okay, I think we're out of time, aren't we? But it's been absolutely wonderful. Um, Nick, thanks so much for coming in. It's and uh, if you who are listening in here liked what you heard and feel inspired by this and maybe you have an idea or a comment, then please, by all means, share this on our either Facebook, Instagram or Twitter accounts uh, or search for us under Higher Ed Heroes Podcast. Thanks for joining us on Higher Ed Heroes and we look forward to your company again.